In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, the Bible says that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about how weird it is that we might be able to deceive ourselves. Have you thought about that before? It's maybe, is it, like how we have perhaps two minds and we think that one mind can maybe hide a bit of knowledge from the other mind. You know, sort of like, okay, left brain, let's keep this thing a secret from the right brain. I mean, it's a bit strange to think about how you can deceive yourself, isn't it? But we know that it makes sense. We do it when we try to convince ourselves of something that we know isn't true. Like when we're on a diet and we try to convince ourselves, deceive ourselves, by thinking that a a piece of birthday cake doesn't actually contribute to our kilojoule count because it's a festive occasion. Or when we try to deceive ourselves by thinking that sharing some personal information about somebody, that isn't gossip um, because it's a prayer point. Or when we try to deceive ourselves by thinking that looking at a pornographic image online doesn't hurt anybody because the photo's already been taken. We know that cakes are kilojoules and prayer points can be gossip and that porn harms the people in the photo. We know that. But somehow we deceive ourselves. The naughty bit of our brain tries to hide things from the good bit of our brain or something like that. And that's how it feels like we've deceived ourselves. What things do you deceive yourself about? What things do you do that you know are wrong? Sometimes it starts with just a little sin. But before you know it, it's turned into a bigger sin. And then it's a big sin. And it's a problem. It all starts with a little sin. And turns into a bigger sin. How did it get to this? How did watching an MA show on Netflix turn into a porn addiction? How did getting cross at the kids turn into domestic abuse? How did a little flutter at the races turn into a gambling addiction? How did signing up to Instagram turn into retail addiction and envy? How did missing one or two weeks at church lead you to walk away from Jesus. It's probably when we've tried to deceive ourselves. What do you deceive yourselves about? Because you know, it's not only yourself that you're trying to deceive. When we willfully sin, we try to deceive God. When we hide our credit card payments or browsing history, or the self-harm marks on our skin. We not only try to deceive ourselves, but we try to deceive God. We think that God won't really notice when we swear or abuse or lust or lie or cheat. And if you thought it was silly trying to deceive yourself, it's just plain stupid to think that we can deceive God, isn't it? For we know that there's a time when everything will be revealed, 
Every deception will be exposed. Every sin will be uncovered. For as we read last week from Hebrews chapter 4, and I'll repeat again tonight, nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. And that is why it is so good that there is justice, but there is also mercy. Praise the Lord. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. See, God knows everything about us, and yet he still freely forgives us. But many people try to deceive themselves and God, and what's more, they don't come to him for mercy. They try to deal with their grave problems in their own strength. They use human techniques to try and reverse the curse of sin, and they fail miserably. That is what we will see today as we see the failure of the two kings that we've been following in our study of the Old Testament book called One Kings. Last week we watched how the king of the north, Jeroboam, refused to repent of the fake religion that he made. He did a poor copy of the true faith and he had fake altars and fake festivals and and he didn't just make one golden calf, he made two. And he did it so that the northern tribes wouldn't be tempted to join up with the southern kingdoms of God. But in doing so, he just deceived himself. He deceived himself thinking that God would be okay with that. Oh, God will think this is a good idea, surely. And when the man of God from Judah came and prophesied against the altar and against him, he wanted to shut the prophet down. And when his pointing hand seized up, His plea to the prophet was for healing, not for forgiveness. He was face to face with the man who spoke for God. And yet he didn't feel the need to confess his sin or to seek mercy. And today in chapter 14, we will see how this hard-hearted stubbornness will be his downfall. And then in the second chapter, second half of the chapter, we'll see how that the southern king, Rehoboam, he'll come crashing down as well. And it all starts with a crisis for King Jeroboam. Chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Jeroboam's son, Abijah, became very sick. Things have suddenly got really bad in the life of Jeroboam. Remember, he's the king of the north. Tragedy strikes Jeroboam. Tragedy strikes him. And the tragic events have an even greater impact because it's likely that this son is his oldest son. And because of that, it was expected that he'd be the next king. And so the whole kingdom's at risk because his successor's life is at risk. Not that he's probably thinking much about politics at this time, because right now he's got a very sick son and it would be breaking his heart. I know that When one of my four kids gets sick, I just want to drop everything and help them. And as you're standing there at the mercy of the medical staff, you just feel helpless and vulnerable. Well, that's kind of what's going on with the great king of the north, Jeroboam. He's weak. He's vulnerable. But it's not the first time that one of God's kings had a sick son. When King David committed adultery 
The woman that he committed adultery with was with child and had a son. And that son got very, very sick. And he spent seven nights praying to God, please heal my son. But what about Jeroboam? What will he do about his sick son? Will he do the David thing? Verse 2 and 3. So Jeroboam told his wife, disguise yourself so that no one will recognize you as my wife. And then go to the prophet Ahijah at Shiloh, the man who told me I would become king. Take him a gift of 10 loaves of bread, some cakes and a jar of honey and ask him what will happen to the boy. What is his solution to the problem? What, is Abish, what, is, what does Jeroboam do? Jeroboam's solution is to deceive God's prophet. David prayed, Jeroboam deceived. Jeroboam took matters into his own hands and he tried to carry out a plan that could manipulate the events by lying, by being deceitful. He, he knew that the only hope for his son's recovery was to engage with God in some sort of way, kind of like when his hand got all got, you know, stuck. He, he knew it had to be a God thing. But instead of repenting and praying to God, he sent his wife in disguise so that the prophet wouldn't get grumpy at the king. After all, this is the same one who we, told, we heard a couple of weeks ago. He's the guy who ripped up his cloak into 12 bits and he said you have 10 and the other two bits were over there he's that guy and remember what he said to Jeroboam well before he became king he said in chapter 11 back then he said if you this is what the Lord said if you listen to what I tell you and follow my ways and do whatever I consider to be right and if you obey my decrees and commands as my servant David did then I will always be with you I will establish an enduring dynasty for you as I did for David and I will give Israel to you. Jeroboam had his chance to be like a great David type person and what does he do? He blows it. He disobeyed the decrees and the commands of the Lord. But now he knows that he's got to go back and talk to this guy. It's an awkward conversation. So he sends his wife instead. Or actually, he sends his wife in disguise instead so that the prophet wouldn't really see who she was and it wouldn't get all awkward and he might, it might not sort of in, kind of endanger the possibility of him sending a message that would heal his son. The king knew that the Lord was powerful. The king knew that the Lord would save. And what does the king do? He can't come to him genuinely. He can't come to him honestly. I think we'd have to say that Jeroboam was too proud to approach God. Too proud to approach God. It kind of reminds me of people who, who grow up in a family that loved Jesus. And they, they, they'd come to church when they were young. And then they grew up. And then they fell away from God. And now in their old age, they come into a big problem that they can't fix even though they've they've been amassed with wealth and possessions and and maybe even had positions of power and authority they know now that they can't fix their big problems themselves they know deep down that the god they were taught when they were a child is real 
And that he's the only way that they can have an answer. He's the only way that they can be truly forgiven. The only way that they can have the deepest problems dealt with. The only way that they can have certainty for eternity. But they are too proud to come back. Say, oh, I haven't been to church for so long, I couldn't possibly come to God. And I think that's why King Jeroboam sent his wife in disguise off to the man of God, the prophet. He sends some gifts, some humble gifts, kind of like the average kind of lady would. And so she arrives, verse 4. Jeroboam's wife went to Ahijah's home at Shiloh. He was an old man now and could no longer see. Hmm. He's old and he can't see, which means that she wouldn't have needed to have changed her appearance anyway. If you knew you were going to go and see a guy who was blind, you wouldn't, you wouldn't worry wearing a false nose or a moustache or a wig, would you? Because he can't see, right? So obviously they haven't had anything to do with this prophet for a really, really, really long time. Otherwise they would have known it's a bit like when people say, oh, I'm Church of England. They say, that's nice, but we changed our name to Anglican back in 1981. These guys haven't had anything to do with God, anything to do with Ahijah, at least, for so long. But even if the disguise was amazingly good, it wouldn't have worked. Because in verse 5, we read that the Lord had told Ahijah, Jeroboam's wife will come here pretending to be someone else. She will ask you about her son, for he is very sick. Give her the answer I give you, which we'll find out in just a moment. See, they can try and deceive God, but it turns out that he's actually quite aware of what's happening in the universe that he controls. It's a waste of time to try and deceive God. And so the Lord tells the prophet Ahijah that the wife will come in disguise and tell her a special answer. And so in verse 6a, we read that when Ahijah heard her footsteps at the door, he called out, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why are you pretending to be someone else? Sprung. He hasn't even opened up the door yet. But he can sort of hear her arrive and go, Oh, I know who you are. And as she gathers her thoughts and, and works out just the kind of excuse that she might do to, to, as she's sort of digging deeper in this hole of deceit, before she has had a chance to say anything, this is what happens. Then he told her, I have bad news for you, the prophet says. Give your husband, Jeroboam, this message from the Lord, the God of Israel. Anyone ever said to you, I have bad news for you. It's not pleasant. And it wasn't pleasant now either. Because the prophet has bad news for Jeroboam. And it is all straight from God. Here's the word of the Lord. 7b. Through Ahijah, Jeroboam gets this message through his wife. And he says, I promoted you from the ranks of the common people and made you ruler over my people Israel. I ripped the kingdom away from the family of David and I gave it to you. He starts off, the Lord starts off by saying to Jeroboam, mate, you were a nobody. 
You were a nobody, but I made you a somebody. All by my initiative. Not because you're gifted or talented or strong or tall or good looking. And I gave you most of the kingdom. I ripped it away from the guy who was in charge down in the south, the descendant of David. And yet, what he's done is a really bad and evil job. Verse 8b. But you have not been like my servant David, who obeyed my commands and followed me with all his heart and always did whatever I wanted. It's not always nice to be compared with someone else. But Jeroboam, well, when he's compared with David, he does not look good. And he was given a chance to be like David. He, he was told, listen, follow this stuff, follow me, and, and I'll treat you like David. But he didn't. He sure didn't. Verse 9. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made other gods for yourself and have made me furious with your gold calves. I mean, maybe he is a high achiever after all. The winner of the most evil award. Up to that point in time, the Lord has considered him to be the most evil person of all. Can you believe that? Jeroboam is the most evil person of all. And that's because he's made other gods and that has made the Lord furious. It's a pretty strong emotion for the Lord, isn't it? For him to say, I'm furious. You'd expect that the Lord would be always kind of cool and calm and collected. It's like, oh, I've made these golden calves. Not happy. No, that's not the way the Lord reacted. He gets angry. He even gets furious. You see, we are constantly tempted to think that our sin doesn't hurt anyone. But that's another deception. It nearly always hurts other people. But even when it doesn't hurt others, it always hurts God. That's why the cross requires God to take out his anger on his son in our place. It's not some sort of emotionless paying of a fine. It's the anger you feel when a loved one has hurt you and deceived you and deserted you. That's the anger God felt for us until he placed it on his son in our place. Don't think that God is just an emotionless, passionless, unmoved mover God gets very angry at sin and that's what he said to the evil king Jeroboam the king who not only himself has turned away from God but he's taken a whole tribe of people with him ten tribes of people and here's how the Lord will respond to his evil verse 9b and since you have turned your back on me Jeroboam I, the Lord, will bring disaster on your dynasty and will destroy every one of your male descendants, slave and free alike, anywhere in Israel. I will burn up your royal dynasty as one burns up trash until it's all gone. The members of Jeroboam's family who die in the city will be eaten by dogs and those who die in the field will be eaten by vultures. I, the Lord, have spoken." Pretty strong language, wouldn't you say? 
But listen to verse 10 in the old King James Version. Therefore, behold, I will bring evil upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam him that pisseth against the wall and him that is shut up and left in Israel and will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as a man taketh away dung till it be all gone. Our modern translations have softened the language a little bit. But that's actually a bit more literal. He is, the Lord is so angry at Jeroboam that he mentions urine and feces. He brings up toilet stuff. That is how angry he is. It's kind of like when you see a teacher at school or a parent or somebody just seem to lose it getting so angry at somebody. You think, ooh, that's what we see here. Imagine if you were the prophet bringing the news to the wife, to bring to the husband. Do you want to write this down? It's pretty full on. But what's going to happen to the sick child? Well, that's what she was there for. Ahijah said to Jeroboam's wife, go on home and when you enter the city, your child will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He's the only member of your family who will have a proper burial. For this child is the only good thing that the Lord, the God of Israel, sees in the entire family of Jeroboam. The son of the king will die, but he will die with dignity. Suddenly, but with dignity. It's tragic, but there's a slight consolation. Unlike the rest of them who will be eaten by dogs and vultures, there's actually going to be a proper burial for this kid. And that's because he's the only good thing in the whole place. And the news for the rest of that evil kingdom gets even worse. Verses 14 to 16. In addition, the Lord will raise up a king over Israel who will destroy the family of Jeroboam. This will happen today, even now. And then the Lord will shake Israel like a reed whipped around in a stream. He will uproot the people of Israel from this good land that he gave their ancestors and will scatter them beyond the Euphrates River. They had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the consecration of the temple. They had gathered, but now they were going to be scattered. The gathering has now turned into a scattering. And the role of Israel will be uprooted from the land that God gave them. And now they'll be scattered. Why this harsh judgment? Why would they be scattered way back to where Abraham was before he even went into the land. How could that all happen? What would make God so angry? Verse 15b, For they have angered the Lord with the Asherah poles they've set up for worship. He will abandon Israel because Jeroboam sinned and made Israel sin along with him. They have have gone full on in their worship of other gods. They've used these, these pagan Asherah poles. And not only has has Jeroboam done evil, he's led his people to sin as well. If only he could have just done bad stuff that affected himself and not others, but no. His sin has affected the whole nation he led and all of them have sinned with him. The sin of one man can bring sin to the whole kingdom. How thankful we are that the sinlessness of one king can bring forgiveness to a whole kingdom as well. 
That's what we know of Jesus, isn't it? That's the stark difference between Jeroboam and Jesus. One man's sin brought sin to the whole kingdom. One man's sinlessness brought forgiveness to all who were in his kingdom. And that's what it's like when we follow Jesus. There's no one else that I'd rather follow than Jesus. And if you haven't followed him yet, let me say that the Lord's anger remains on you. God is a God of anger and you don't want to have his anger on you because he's offered to give it to his son instead so that no anger would be upon your shoulders. This is unbelievable. Well, it is believable, but the Spirit's got to give you belief in it because it's extraordinary that the Lord would set things up this way. Because the wages of sin is death, which we see so starkly. In the life and the family of Jeroboam, verse 17. So Jeroboam's wife returned to Terzah and the child died just as she walked through the door of her home. And all Israel buried him and mourned for him as the Lord had promised through the prophet Ahijah. The son died as the mother came home. And the whole deception of the king was in vain. If only he had turned to the Lord in his distress and confessed his sin. If only he was honest with God, then surely things would have been different. But this is only half of the story. Because whilst the northern kingdom had gone to dung, you'd think that the southern kingdom, under the son of Solomon, the grandson of King David, maybe that would be okay. Maybe it was fine. Let's have a look at verse 21. Meanwhile, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, was king in Judah, down the bottom. He was 41 years old when he became king and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city the Lord had chosen from among all the tribes of Israel as the place to honour his name. It starts off there. And we read also, that Rehoboam's mother was Neymar, an Ammonite woman. So far, so good, except the king's mum was an Ammonite. Now, given that this son of Solomon was 41 years old when he became king, and his dad Solomon was king for 40 years, that means that he was born one year before his dad became king, right? And his dad was married at that time to a foreign woman, one year before he was king. Even before he was king, Solomon took a foreign wife, a foreign woman who worshipped other gods, who had pagan rituals as part of her normal life. Would have influenced Solomon, surely. And certainly her son, Rehoboam, would have seen the way that mum went to church, the way that she did worship, and like a chip off the old block, he's done the same thing. Verse 22, during Rehoboam's reign, the people of Judah did what was evil in the Lord's sight, provoking his anger with their sin, for it was even worse than that of their ancestors. Southern kingdoms, not a whole lot better. They made the Lord angry as well. Well, a, a particular kind of anger, the ESV puts it this way, they provoked him to jealousy. 
with the sins that they committed. The Lord wasn't just angry, he was jealous. The Lord was jealous. We sometimes think of jealousy as being a negative thing, something we feel when we can't have what someone else has got. Like, oh, I'm really jealous that they've got that thing. I'd love that. That's actually not jealousy. That's envy. That's not good, right? But jealousy is different. Jealousy is what a person feels when their spouse brings another person into the bed of their home and sleeps with them on their pillow. That's jealousy. Jealousy is the feeling a person has when their spouse deserts them for another lover. And in that case, jealousy is not only normal, it's appropriate. And that's exactly what the Lord feels about his own people. His own people in his own place, deserting him. In Jerusalem, they're worshipping other gods. Can you imagine it? It's as though they committed adultery in the marriage bed. Jerusalem. The sanctuary of the Lord in his land. And this is what the infidelity looked like. We read in verse 23 and 24, they also built for themselves pagan shrines and they set up sacred pillars and Asherah poles on basically every high hill and under every green tree. There were even male and female shrine prostitutes throughout the land. This is in the south. The people imitated the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. Can you believe it? Judah has turned as pagan as they could get. Pagan shrines, sacred pillars and Asherah poles, male and female shrine prostitutes. They imitated the practices of the pagan nations they were told to drive out of the Lord's land. And it was only a matter of time before the rot would set in further. It was only a matter of time before the glory of the Lord was eroded by the actions of this evil king. And we see one example of that here in verse 25, that in the fifth year, he's been on the king for five years, King Shishak of Egypt came up and attacked Jerusalem. He ransacked the treasuries of the Lord's temple and the royal palace He stole everything, including all the gold shields Solomon had made. I remember being up here about two months ago. We were talking about the temple and the beauty and the gold and the presence of the Lord and how beautiful and this high point. And Rehoboam, this idiot, worships other gods. And the, he's, been in the, he's been in the job five years and the Egyptians come up and they nick it all and they take it down to Egypt. The king of Egypt stole the glory of the Lord. The plunder that the Lord gave his people at the Exodus is now plundered back. The mighty have fallen. A dog has returned to its vomit. And yet the king acted as though the plundering didn't really matter. So he made some fake shields. and said, It'll be fine. Nothing's a problem. We read that he later replaced them with bronze shields, the substitutes, and he entrusted them to the care of the commanders of the guard who protected the entrance of the royal palace. And whenever the king went to the temple of the Lord, the guards would also take out the fake shields and return them to the guard room. Oh, let's pretend nothing's really happened. Idiot. 
It's really pretty embarrassing. The temple treasures are ransacked. But he pretends like it's all normal. Nothing to see, nothing to see, as you were. It's just one example of what a bad king he was. The kingdom of the north was a disaster. And so was the south. And because of the abhorrent behavior of Solomon, the kingdom was ripped apart and the once united kingdom was now deeply divided. So much so we read in the next verse that there was constant war between Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north. Constant war all those years. A tragic mess. This is what sin does. It's what happens when we deceive ourselves and we don't take the threat of sin seriously. We tell ourselves just a little bit of sin won't really hurt. We just think it's not going to make any difference. That an MA show on Netflix, that'll be fine. Getting across at the kids, that won't tend to do anything. A flutter at the races, signing up to Instagram, missing one or two weeks at church. If we claim we have no sin, we're fooling ourselves. But hear these beautiful words of comfort. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with who the we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Our advocate pleads our case before the Father. Let's take 60 seconds just to silently pray to God ourselves. Let's pray.